I'd like to introduce Chuck R. from New Westminster. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Chuck. Grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I always start very slow because I'm not a speaker. I have no speech. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to say, so this could get exciting. And I uh, hope I don't offend anybody, but if I do, don't tell me about it. Tell somebody else. They'll get back to me later. Uh, this is AA. <laughs> Um, I don't know how Damon got up here and stole a little bit of the thunder. Uh, Damon's uh, my number one sponsee. I'll tell you a story about this. Uh, I guess this is a good way to start it. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in 1968, which gives me a little over 25 years of sobriety. And because of the group that I started in, uh, I was taught from the beginning that sobriety doesn't have to be a series of slips. That doesn't mean that slips don't happen and that, that doesn't mean that everybody comes to AA and stays contentedly and continuously sober. But in the group that I went to, they immediately told me that if I wanted to, there was a possibility that I could learn something about not about them and not from them, but something about a program called Alcoholics Anonymous that could help me to maintain a continued reprieve from the use of alcohol in my life. And that meeting was started by George. Uh, George and I have only met twice in 25 years. And uh, the first time I met him was six days after I went to my first meeting at a group that he started. Uh, I was invited to his home for uh, a New Year's Christmas dinner. Now, he didn't know me, but I sure knew who he was. Uh, every guy in that room called George their sponsor. I found out later that he didn't know a lot of them. But, <laughs> but thanks to what he did and what got started there, it's been a wonderful journey. And that journey, part of that journey is about my friend Damon. Uh, the, when I went to that first meeting, I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was. And uh, I had no idea why I was there except I didn't want to drink anymore. I don't know about anybody else that comes to AA, but my reason for coming to AA was I knew that I didn't want to drink anymore and I knew that I had to do something to make that adjustment. And someone steered me to AA. We'll get into that story in a few minutes. <clears throat> but when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there we go. At that first meeting, and this, this is how sick or how confused I was. When I went to that first meeting, uh, I'd been already sober for two and a half months. Uh, sober meaning I had not had a drink for two and a half months. Having no idea that I was an alcoholic, having no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was about, and having no idea that there was possibly a chance that I could do something about what was really bothering me. And what was really bothering me wasn't necessarily alcoholism. What was really bothering me was I was afraid that I was insane. Now, I don't think many of you people identify with that totally. Because uh, most of us are so sick, we don't know how to be afraid of insanity. It seems like a good way out. Uh, I, 
what, years ago when I met Damon, uh, he hadn't had a drink, I think for about four or five years, and he was going to AA meetings. And he was more insane than anybody I had ever seen in AA. Now, what I did immediately was what my sponsors did to me. Knowing that the insanity that strikes many alcoholics is, is such a selfish, uh, self-centered thing. It's so driven by fear that I didn't ask him if he needed a sponsor. I asked him, and my, at this time I was about 12 or 13 years sober, I said, you know, I'm new in town and I'm having trouble. Do you think you could be my sponsor? Well, he said, sure. <laughs> and what a trip. What a trip it was. It was exactly what had happened to me when I got to AA. When I got to AA, I joined a group of George's friends. Now, George was 25 years sober then. And George's friends were all newly sober and they were absolutely insane. And what they did was they asked me if I would help them stay sober. Now, it's a trick. For you newcomers, don't believe it. It's a trick. Like, it's... I, when I went to that first meeting, they didn't tell me there was other meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a home group. There was seven people there. I thought that was all the sober alcoholics in the city of Edmonton. I thought, boy, there's a lot of them, you know. <laughs> I had no idea there was things called open groups and closed discussion groups and this group. And there was all kinds of groups, but I had no idea. I went to AA. And these guys told me that it was very important to them. They told me very simple things. They, they, one of the things that really blew me, they said, welcome. Like, I didn't know what welcome was anymore. I hadn't been welcome anywhere. Maybe my mother's home on occasion. But that was about the only place where people tolerated me for more than a few minutes for a long, long time. And these guys said, welcome. And they said, uh, they asked me how I was doing, and, and I did what most, you know, I lied. I said, fine, you know, that's why I'm here. You know, <laughs> these, these people took me, uh, beginning on that day, the 23rd of December, 1968, uh, being insanely sober without a drink for over two months, these people took me on the beginning, that day, on the beginning of a journey that has lasted to now. And that journey has included so many people and so many different things in so many ways that it's really hard to compact it into something to talk about. I don't know how to give a speech about Alcoholics Anonymous because that would mean I would have to contain myself to a, to a given pattern. So what I like to do is talk about sobriety as it's happened to me and how it was given to me. More, more about how it was given to me than about what I did. I didn't do much in sobriety. I have never done much in sobriety. Uh, I've done what's asked of me. I've, I've showed up. Uh, I showed up often enough, strong enough, and long enough to be really enthusiastic and proud to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I love going to meetings. Uh, I don't miss meetings. I don't. I have my home group that I miss once in a while when I'm away from town, but. I don't miss meetings. I, I get to as many meetings as I can without jeopardizing my family life and my job. And uh, now I'm married to an alcoholic, so that makes it even better. Um, so I'm going to start right back. I'm not going to start in the drunk log. I'm not going to give you a drunk log. Everybody here 
for the exception of some of the Al-Anon members, knows how to get drunk. That's no problem. I mean, everybody knows how that, everybody knows what it feels like. Like, we had a pukathon up here today. Uh, uh, when the old timers talked, uh, there was a lot of talk about barf and things, <laughs> things happening and, and it was really great. You know, it was, it was really good because it brought me right back to why I got here. Why I got, you know, it's more than just a mental illness, it's a physical disease. But what happened, uh, what I was given a gift when I first came here. People talk about miracles in AA. And my sponsors taught me one thing from the beginning, that, that the people in AA aren't the miracle. The program, as it's given in the simplicity of the big book, is the miracle. There's 164 pages of, of things that are written in here that are, I mean, it's so simple that that little bit, uh, 164 pages, has changed the course of over 4 million people's lives. Uh, people have written here, like there's encyclopedias, there's all kinds of things on how to, how to solve a disease. And here it is in 164 pages. And I'm going to tell you about Big Book a little bit. Uh, I'm what you call a Big Book thumper. I learned it from some of George's sponsees. Uh, the first thing this big book is, uh, when you first come into Alcoholics Anonymous, it's really nice. We gave, a, or we gave, we members of AA gave some new people a big book tonight. And they'll probably do the same thing with it as most of us did. It, it makes a good doorstop. Uh, it, it keeps furniture from getting water stains on it. If you put it in the right place in the house, it's a good spoon rest in the kitchen. Um, it's a good place to hide money because uh, in a newly sober family, nobody looks at the damn thing. <laughs> uh, my sponsors gave me, or the people in that group who became my sponsors, gave me a big book at my first meeting. And, and the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous happened to me from that first meeting. The first thing they did, they didn't tell me how sick I was. They told me how sick they were. They told me the things that they were going through today. They told me about the things that they had gone through up till today. Uh, when I was at that first meeting, the guy who became my, my chief sponsor, uh, his name was Jack McLean, and he doesn't mind me saying his name. He lives in Edmonton. Now, this guy was the smartest man on earth, as far as I was concerned. He just, he just emanated sobriety. He had five years of sobriety. He'd been sober forever. And he had the longest sobriety in that group. You know, George had already given up on those guys. <laughs> and these, these men were wonderful. And this guy, uh, he told me at that first meeting. Now, the first meeting they did something really wonderful. They, they did something just for me. And uh, nobody else. They did it for me. They, they dug into this book and they found this chapter called How It Works. And they read it to me. And they told me about the steps. And I was sure that they just did it for me that day because it seemed to go on and on and on. And it talked about, there was, there was two words in there that horrified me. One of them was honesty. Uh, honesty. Like, what's that got to do, you know, like, what's that got to do with anything about me? Honesty. I don't want to hear about this. The other one was the word God. It, it kept showing up over and over and over, and I thought, oh no, I hope they don't do this often. <laughs> so they read this just for me, 
And then they talked about themselves. And, we, and I think we read a, a step out of the 12 by 12. I can't remember. Uh, I, I know that's what that group did. So they probably read the first step. But I remember this. And, and they went through these things. And then they told me stories about themselves. And I was sure that somebody had warned them. Like, I was, I was a fairly visible drunk. I was only 25 years old when I got to AA. And uh, I was quite uh, not popular, but well-known, you know. <laughs> People knew who I was, even though I didn't want them to know who I was because of the things I was doing. But people knew who I was, and uh, so I thought someone had really set them up. And they were talking about things they'd done. You know, they were doing the barfalogs, and they were and they were talking about the, the things that they destroyed and the times they'd ended up in drunk tanks and jails and and the people whose lives they had just a little bit disrupted. And they were telling me all these stories, you know, and partying in garbage dumps and. You know, all the kinds of things that we know how to do. Uh, sleeping in dumpsters, like what most normal drinkers do. They were, and I thought, oh, somebody told them about me, so they're trying to make me feel comfortable, and this is great, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of the center of attention. And, uh, and they read these steps. Now, I didn't really know that they were reading, I thought they were kind of like, I didn't know what was in the big book. I just, they were reading this thing and, and it was for me and it talked about me. And I thought, well, there's 12 things there. They probably want me to pick something. So I did. And uh, the thing that I picked that first day in Alcoholics Anonymous, now my, I was uh, insane already. I'll tell you how, for the newcomers, I'm going to tell you in a minute how to stay sober without AA if you want to. I have one way. There's a lot of ways. You can ask any old timer. Everybody's tried something. But... When, when I went through these steps, there was one that really struck my fancy. It really, it was like, I, you know, they read step one, it was about we did this, and step two was about what you could do, and step three was about this God thing, and step four was about stop lying, and step five was stop lying in front of people, you know. <laughs> and, and then they got to step six. And it says, oh, it's really a wonderful thing. It says we're entirely ready to have God remove all the defects of your character. And I thought, oh, right on. Now I don't have to do them other five steps. Because those are about what I should do. If I talk to God and I convince Him that I'm ready, He's going to take away all those defects of character and by tomorrow morning I should be on a roll. You know, and I've done this many times drunk without this program here. You know, how many times uh, have one just before the first drink would say, okay, I'm just going to have a couple and I'm going to get in the groove. <laughs> I'm just going to, I just need a little to take the edge off and I'm going to get right in there, you know, and I used to do that before I, I used to get paid money to play hockey and I used to get in the groove just before I got in the ice, you know, and I used, I'd last about 14 minutes <laughs> and, uh, if I didn't get a penalty by that time, I used to sit in the back of the back of the players' box and cheer a lot. You know that was. But but I, I thought, well, if I can just if I can just grab this thing. So I don't know what these guys told me after that. I remember identifying with them. I remember them telling me the, the nice things about that this could be the first day of a long time, a long change for the rest of my life, and that there were simple things that I could do, and that there was no hurry. Uh, I didn't understand that they were giving me uh, that dignity of a slow recovery from the seemingly hopelessness. You know, the, the, this disease is so insidious 
that you don't even know you're sick. You know that, and God, I hate to scare the newcomers. You know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest. Like, if you knew how sick you are, it would be fearful. <laughs> because I haven't had a drink for 25 years, and I know how sick I am today, and it's fearful. <laughs> I'm not sick from the disease of alcoholism today. I'm, I'm, I still suffer from alcoholic mentality. Alcoholic mentality has never left me. I don't think alcoholic mentality will ever leave me. But I'll tell you what happened on that first night. I went home with step six in my mind, entirely ready to have God remove everything that was wrong with me. Now, there was a bit of a problem. First of all, I was, I was, uh, I am now a born-again Catholic, so I, I was brought up. I was brought up in in the Catholic system. Now, not only brought up in the Catholic system, my mother was Catholic, my grandmother was Baptist, my grandfather was a professed atheist, and my dad was a full-blown alcoholic. Now, that's four religions all living in the same house. Okay, that's you know, and the, and the one I liked most was the alcoholic religion. You know that, like. Like, there's a real belief to alcoholism, you know, especially when you don't know what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's like it drives you, you know, and it holds your attention and it makes you do things that are hard to do. <laughs> anyway, living, living under those conditions, I had a real fear of God. And, and it wasn't that I didn't have, uh, for a long time I, I hoped that I was an atheist or an agnostic because at least I'd have an excuse. And then I eventually found out that I always had a belief in God, but I had, a, I had a, an immense fear of God. Uh, the fear was was overdeveloped. And I used to blame the Catholic religion for it. I used to blame the priests and the nuns. And AA taught, AA taught me something, that it wasn't them. It was that, you know, the alcoholic mind doesn't mix well with registered religion with rigid religion, the alcoholic mind. Because the alcoholic mind is always looking for excuses why it acts like it acts. And, and if you're trying to connect that with a religion, there's no excuse. So the best thing to do is become an atheist. Then you've got an excuse. It's like, I know God exists, but if I don't acknowledge him, he'll leave me alone. So by the time I got to AA, that's what I thought about God. But then this step, if I don't... So I thought, I'll go home tonight... And I'll do I'll do something different. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get down on my hands and knees. There's another little idiosyncrasy of mine, and we'll talk about that later on. I'm gonna get down on my hands and knees, and I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna ask God to remove these defects of character. And I don't know what He is, and I don't know where He is, and I don't even know if it's a he or a she or what it. I have no idea, but I'm gonna do it. In the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous started in my life that night. I went home and I prayed. I had no idea what I was praying to and I had no idea what the outcome might be, but I had the hope that something would change. And for the first time in probably months and maybe years, after I prayed, I laid down and I went to sleep and I slept all night long. And I didn't have the jitters and I didn't have the shakes and I didn't have the little voices, and somebody in the pillow. There used to be a guy living in my pillow that kept turning the radio on, you know. <laughs> and uh, I've been sober for two months, and the radio was still on. And I didn't even have I didn't even have a choice on what channel it was on. It just happened, you know. It was like, and, and songs would come through there that I don't remember words to songs, but the guy in the pillow did, boy. He knew, he knew all kinds of things. He used to have 
sports broadcasts sometimes and news reports and all kinds of things going on. The guy left the pillow that night. He was gone. I woke up the next morning and God, I felt wonderful. And I knew that AA worked. Now, the biggest fear I had was that God was going to figure out. Like, I didn't know how to tell him that I didn't believe in him. So, I'm just going to play it by ear. So, we'll go back in my story a little bit. I sobered up in a mental institution. Now, how I sobered up in a mental institution, I heard a guy talking here last night. I believe, or maybe it was this morning. I guess it was this morning. I heard a guy talking. And he knows my story, and he's never seen me. This fellow was talking about guardian angels. Now, I don't know how many of you people have guardian angels, but a guardian angel got me to AA. Now, how, what a guardian angel is, I, I don't know, I'll try and explain it. They're usually somewhere between 5'9 and 6'2. Uh, they're relatively handsome devils. They, uh, they wear darkish type uniforms. Sometimes there's a yellow stripe down their leg. Uh, they carry huge pistols. And they don't try and impress you a whole lot. Now, how my guardian angel found me was that on my last drunk, I had tried to take on half the Canadian Armed Forces in a, in a hotel with shuffleboard rocks. You know, it was like a very gentle game, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and my brother was helping me. My brother doesn't have a problem with alcohol. He just drinks too much. So, there, and, and uh, God, 25 years later, he still doesn't have a problem with alcohol. He just drinks too much. And uh, anyway, he was helping me. We, we were having, you know, I was outnumbered about 55 to 1, so he thought he'd kind of even the odds. It all started there. I have, we were celebrating my mom and dad's wedding anniversary. Uh, and that's how people do it, you know, that's uh, especially if you're, Polish, Ukrainian, French, uh, you know, derivative with all those religions living in the house. How else do you celebrate things? We were celebrating and uh, this thing carried on, carried on. And finally, the army didn't want to fight with us anymore. So we went home and fought amongst each other. And uh, it's part of the story I used to tell people, I said I was drinking in the bar with a lot of people who didn't like me. My wife, my mother, my brother, you know, and I'm sure nobody identifies with that kind of stuff. Anyway, by the time we got home, nobody else wanted to fight with us, so we were fighting amongst ourselves. And, and uh, we weren't really smart fighters, you know. None of us were very good with our fists, so we were using things like knives and sticks. And, you know, and, and most of it was just to keep the other guy away. You weren't really trying to hurt him. You were just, you know, let him hurt himself if he wants to. That's and, and during this whole melee saying, happy anniversary, mom and dad, you know, it's... <laughs> sticking people to the floor, and the guardian angel showed up. And the next thing that happened was the, the, my first sound of sobriety. And the first sound of my sobriety was a, a very sharp, metallic click. And it was just behind my ear. <laughs> it was very cold. And when I turned around, it was very black. <laughs> and the gentleman who made the click the guardian angel said, would you like to come with me? And being a very wise and intellectual young man with an alcohol problem, I said, certainly. <laughs> I had no, a guy was talking about a guardian angel here. 
And this, this fella, I thought he would take me to where they use, usually took me and slap me around a little bit and, you know, we'd get in an argument and we'd finish the battle there. But this fella said to me, he said, uh, I think you have a problem here and I'd like to help you. And, you know, anything to not get hit, like anything, sure, whatever you want. The guy took me out and he bought me a cup of coffee. And I said, boy, this is really strange. You know, I'm going to end up dead in the ditch. I just know it. Like, there's no... And then he said, uh, he said, I want, to, I want to take you for a ride. And he took me out of town on a dark road. And I thought, for sure, I'm going to be dead. And, you know, by that time, it was like, oh, what the hell? You know, <laughs> Like, I'm not going to fight this thing anymore. And what he did was he took me to, uh, to the Provincial Country Club. It's called Oliver Mental Institution. And it's just outside the city of Edmonton. And he introduced me to a couple of nice people at the door. And, and uh, they took me inside. And he said, uh, could you look after this fella? And he went away. And, you know, never heard from him again. That's why I know he was a guardian angel. There was no charges, no tickets, no, no legal ramifications. And he, uh, he said, uh, treat him well. You know, he asked them to treat me well, and I, you know, I really knew there was a setup. I thought it like the gas chambers or something. Something's coming. But anyway, they took me in and they'd asked me uh, when I ate last. You know, I had no idea why they'd say that. I said, well, you know, dinner time, like most people do. I had no idea that a lot of alcoholics don't eat. You know, like uh, I forgot sometimes that I never ate for four or five days. You know, it just never occurred to me that I did that. Uh, anyway, when they took me in there, I, I really. The change came. That was like sobriety in my life started that day. Uh, they were very nice to me there. They gave me a private room. Uh, it, <laughs> it had tufted wallpaper. I don't, don't know if many people have been there, a few of you. Uh, they asked me if I'd like to give them my clothes so they could clean them up. You know, they had a few tears in them and there was a little bit of blood on them. And I certainly, you know, go ahead. They asked me if I'd like to have a shower. and. That's the first time I was ever showered with a powder, you know. <laughs> Turned out to be DDT. That's <laughs> uh, they asked me if I'd like to have a good night's sleep, and I said sure, and they uh, stuck something in my arm. And I found out later, I used to think it was formaldehyde, but it was peraldehyde, and it's, it closely resembles the stuff that they put in corpses so they don't rot. And, <laughs> and that's, uh, I think George could tell you that that's part of it. They used to give you peraldehyde to dry you out. And boy, they did dry you out. By the next day, you know, I, I had like like crispy paper in my skin. Uh, I was 25 years old and felt like I was 106. But anyway, they, they, they did. The miracle started. The miracle of sobriety started. They gave me the private room. Uh, it, had a, it had a window in there and it had a little shutter door so that you could keep people out. And, uh, and then... I had no clothes to worry about, and there was a mattress on the floor and a bucket in the corner. And, and, and the thing that's always baffled me, they put a glass of milk on the floor. I, <laughs> you know, I never did. I just, I, that glass of milk kind of talked to me a little bit. I didn't have a pillow, so the music man was in the glass of milk that told me stories. <laughs> I, I never touched it. I was afraid to touch it. Like, I didn't know what was in it, you know, this pure white substance in a glass. Anyway, the miracle of, of sobriety began to happen that day because I remember sitting in that room, and, and this is full-blown alcoholism at the age of 25, looking around me and saying, you know, thank God I'm here. This doesn't seem so bad now. Now, to be in that situation and think that that's the nicest thing that ever happened to you in your life, 
is a bit confusing. Coming here. They began to treat me, and I wanted to be treated for a nervous breakdown, because if you had a nervous breakdown, you could go to basket weeding class, and uh, you could push a mop around, and you could watch TV anytime you wanted, and nobody would bother you, because when you have a nervous breakdown, you're nuts. <clears throat> but these guys, they didn't know that I was nuts. They thought I was an alcoholic, so they started treating me for alcoholism. And they kept me there for five days. It seemed like an eternity, but... Five days later, they said, we have to let you go on your own reconnaissance. We can't keep you here any longer. Could you phone a friend to come and pick you up? Now, that was the first revelation. I didn't know who to phone. I didn't have any friends left. You know, so I phoned my best drinking buddy. You know, he was a guy. He'd been throwing knives at me the night before, or five nights ago, you know. But I phoned him. I said, come and pick me up. And uh, the, the whole thing started right there as I was leaving down the big steps, and I remember the big concrete pillars, and I was going down the steps, and there was this big guy in a white uniform, and he was really nice to me, and he said, well, young fella, he said, it's good to see you leaving here. He said, see you again soon. <laughs> well, no way, you know, you guys don't treat me right, you don't, you, you got me diagnosed wrong, everything's... And he explained to me really quickly that if I was suffering from the disease of alcoholism, I'd never heard that before that unless I'd made some very drastic changes, that I would return there or to places like that many, many times. And, and I was so glad he told me that because I didn't ever want to go back there. Five days stay was long enough. Uh, the, the wallpaper was starting to bug me. Uh, the food wasn't the greatest. And I knew there was things for me to do. Anyway, I made up my mind that I would do anything I could not to drink. I had no idea that that's what alcoholism was about, but I thought if I don't drink, something's going to get better. Uh, my friend here, this guy came and picked me up, and he tried to talk me into stopping at the Transit Hotel on the way into Edmonton just to start sobriety, you know. <laughs> anyway, we didn't start sobriety in the Transit Hotel. I said, no, I want to go home. I want to go home. I, I'm... You know, I'm tired and I'm beat up and I forgot to phone work and tell them I wouldn't be in about five days ago. And, you know, there was a few things that were a little bit bothering me. Anyway, I, I got home and, and I had a little rest and I phoned work and I said I said to my boss, I said, well, I've been away for a while. I, you know, I had a little bit of a... Con oh, he says, yeah, we know where you were, you know, no problem. Right on. You know? <laughs> Somebody was checking up on me and he said, uh, I said, well, I'll come to work tomorrow. He says, no, take a week or two off. You know, and I thought, well, that's a good idea. Now, the other problem was I was living in a house with my ex-wife. We just had a divorce. And, uh, like, being a good alcoholic, and I don't, again, I don't know how many are going to identify with this, but I know we were divorced, but I was still paying the rent, so why the hell should I move? <laughs> you, you know, we'd been divorced for about four months, and I was, I just put a little room in the basement. It was a dirt cellar and I used to drink my wine down there. And uh, so they didn't want me at work and I said to her, I said, do you mind if I hang around? And she said, for no more than eight hours a day, you know, that's it. Like, you got to get out of here in the daytime. And I thought, well, gee, I can't go to work and I can't stay here. Now, this guy told me that if I didn't want to drink, I should make some changes. Now, I knew one of the things that was wrong with the world was there wasn't enough uh, law enforcement happening. 
There wasn't enough things. But that, that was just in the back of my mind. So I thought the first thing I thought about, I should start a business. Now, October, in Edmonton, I don't know how many of you people have been there. There's snow on the ground. It's cold. I thought, a business. Now, I'm a bright young man. I'll start a bicycle repair shop. That's what I mean. <laughs> I don't know about bicycle. I never, I didn't, you know, the last bicycle I had, I probably ran over it with a car or something. Like, I don't, but a bicycle repair business sounds good because nobody's got one in our street. You know, that's, and uh, that's not alcoholic thinking at all, is it? Anyway, then I thought, well, if I'm going to start a business, I should advertise. So I went to the Salvation Army, which is about 10 or 12 blocks down the road, and and I knew they had this old photocopy, not a photocopy, a Gestetner machine. So I thought, well, I'll go down and I'll get this Gestetner machine for five bucks, and I'll print up some advertising. So on the way back to the house from the Salvation Army, another miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous or sobriety happened. A bus splashed me. Splashed me with some dirty snow. And immediately I knew the bicycle repair business was out. What this guy was talking about was making changes that counted. And I decided I knew what to do. I went home and I printed up within the next four or five hours about four or five hundred citizens arrest traffic tickets. And I knew that if I made changes, things would happen. For two months, I stayed sober. And this is for the newcomers, if you're really wondering what to do. For two months, I, I, I arrested over 400 people. I arrested people for spitting on the sidewalk. I arrested people for making right-hand turns at red lights. I arrested people for going over the speed in a school zone, I think. And I chased them down with my bicycle. <laughs> Within two months, my mother was going to change the family name. I'd been on television once and been in the newspaper twice. I was called the 95th Street Vigilante. <laughs> I was at a meeting a while back, about eight years ago, and... Uh, a friend of mine from North Vancouver, his mother was out visiting him and I happened to tell this story at an open meeting and she got up and she said, I remember you, I still have one of your tickets. <laughs> and she would never tell us what it was for. <laughs> what happened was the notoriety. It kept me sober. It kept me busy. Uh, it took me a while after getting into AA to find out why they didn't want me at work. They didn't want me at work because I disrupted everything. It, it was like they had everything going smooth. I'd walk in and it all went to hell. I was a power lineman for the city of Edmonton. Now, can you imagine a power line, lineman making live line electrical connections and his hands are shaking like this? Like, you know, and then once I got off the booze, I got into coffee, you know, and it got worse. And I had a partner. I always had partners, and nobody wanted to be my partner anymore. Like, we'd go in there in the morning, and everybody'd grab a partner, and pretty soon everybody's gone, and I'm still standing there wondering who's going to work with me today. <laughs> Two months into my sobriety, a man who I worked with said, 
I think, I understand what you're trying to do, but I think there's another solution. And he directed me to a fellow who was going to home group number two in Edmonton. So I had my last drink on October 15th, and on December 23rd, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's when this little story started to happen about the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, from that point on, it's been quite a journey. It's a journey that I, that I, I don't know how to confine sometimes. I don't know how to tell it to everybody. But I'm going to talk just, just briefly because I don't want to be here more than 9 o'clock because you may get bored. But I'm going to talk briefly about what I think happened to me because of the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, uh, I became immediately a big book thumper. And the reason I was a big book thumper was because when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I walked into that first meeting not knowing how sick I was. I didn't know that I had impaired vision. I, had, I was seeing double and I didn't know it. Uh, the, one of the funniest things that I found out later on was by that time I only had six teeth left in my mouth because I was a real jock. You know, I, was a real, like, I was a real good hockey player, but I, I always skated with my head down. And, uh, you know, uh, I, remember, I remember playing hockey against Gordie Howe one time. I was playing for the Junior Flyers in Edmonton. And I remember Gordie Howe saying to me, uh, how's it going, kid? And I said, fine. And he said, oh, yeah. And he broke my jaw with his elbow. You know, and, and I had more respect for that guy after that. <laughs> Simple little things. Never did get the jaw fixed. Uh, what happened was, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no idea what kind of devastation had happened to me physically and mentally. Uh, I stuttered. I didn't know that. I didn't know, you know, it's, it's amazing for a person to be talking to you that stutters and they don't know they stutter. There's there's no way you're going to get out of there for a while. You know, it just it goes on and on. Um, I I had brain damage. I had lumbar dyslexia, and I and I had the alcoholic shuffle already by the time I was 25 years old, and and I, I wa- always walked stooped over, and I didn't know that. I was totally colorblind. I went to my first AA meeting with a with a green sport. Some of the old timers were talking. They remember when we first come to AA? Everybody used to dress up to go to meetings. <laughs> You know, everybody used to dress up. All the gals dressed up. All the guys dressed up. We used to dress up for banquets. We used to dress up for... Friday night came along, we dressed up. Didn't know why, but we all dressed up. Well, I dressed up to go to my first meeting. Well, I found out later what I wore to that first meeting. And this is why the guys knew, you know, the dignity of, of, of a slow recovery. They knew how bad I was. I had a green sports jacket on, kind of plaid. I had an orange shirt on. I had a purple tie and purple pants. I had one green sock and one red sock. I thought I was dressed in brown. You know, like a few years ago I met Damon, he was dressed like that, but it was acceptable then. See, it was <laughs> By that time it became fashionable. Now I walked into that meeting like that thinking everything is cool, man. <laughs> I had six teeth in my mouth. All the rest were gone. Damaged, you know, alcoholic damage. And those teeth were, I had, I remember I had two up here, two down here, and one over there. Now the nice thing was I liked to smile a lot. You know, I see guys, I'd like, alcoholics like to smile. And I like to smile only showing teeth. So I walked into that meeting looking like a Christmas tree, 23rd of December, sneering. <laughs> and they said, welcome! <laughs> You're in the right place! <laughs> 
I didn't know that the fluids had leaked out of my brain sack and that my brain was sitting against my skull and I was a walking stroke victim. I had no idea. had no idea. Those people did what was done for them. Those people took me. They didn't ask me to hurry up. They gave me a big book. Now, four, or not four, I should say, two and a half years after they gave me the big book, I opened it up one day and found out they glued all the back pages together. I tried to get into the stories and they were glued. I couldn't get... And I went to them and I said, why did you do that? And they said, if you ever read one of those stories, you're going to think it's yours. You're going to want to be a preacher. <laughs> you're going to forget what your own life is all about. So that was it. No stories. They said, you'll do fine in the front part. So I took the big book and I took that front part and I used to I, I discovered open meetings and I discovered podium meetings and I discovered rallies and roundups and I would go around wherever I could and stick my nose in and I used to preach this book. I would I would tell people how to solve all their problems and they would say, But but what do I do? I'd say, It's in the book. It's right here. No big book thumper. It's in the book. No problem. What page? Find it for yourself. It's in the book. So about four years after I was in AA and preaching a big book and telling everybody how it works. My sponsor said, i got to tell you something. He said, you do really well. But I'd like you to do something just for a change. He said, the next time you open that big book, he said, read the black things. What black things? <laughs> it's like, I had no idea what was in here. I had listened to them, I had listened to other people, and I hoped that what they told me was the truth, and I tried to repeat it. And they, and they gave me that. When I found out that there was, uh, the, the back pages were glued together, I bought another big book. I took it to a meeting one time, and Jack just opened it up and ripped it in half. And he took all the stories away. He said, you're not going to get off that easy. It took me a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous. The dignity of a slow recovery with the help of people who loved and cared for me. They didn't ask me to hurry up. They didn't ask me to be well right away. They didn't ask me to stop lying and cheating and stealing. They asked me to keep coming back. I was a treasurer of the group for a while because it's the only way I knew how to buy gas. <laughs> I wish that was a lie, but it isn't. <laughs> They gave me the simplicity of these steps. The simplicity. They said, try. And when you're tired of trying, get rid of that word. And do. And as you do, you will begin to understand what's right and what's wrong. Not for everybody else in AA, but for you. They gave me step one as a one-part thing. They said step one doesn't have two parts. And step one is not about acceptance. Step one is about admitting that you're an alcoholic, admitting that you're powerless over alcohol, and that because of that, because of that admission, your life is unmanageable. If you never admit that you're powerless over alcohol, you're always going to be thinking that your life is slightly manageable. How simple. It doesn't expound upon that in the big book, but when you read it, that's what it tells you. But boy, isn't that nice. So I don't have to really... I had a hard time accepting this thing. And they said, if you, if you admit on a daily basis that the disease of alcoholism is something that you have no control over, 
and eventually you do these steps, you will begin to accept the recovery from alcoholism. I never have to accept alcoholism as a disease rampant in my body. I have to accept what's the possibility of changing that. Then they, then they took me simply through the steps over and over and over. It didn't take them long, but about 10 years. 10 years after I was in that group, I was able to move away. You know, it was like... Step two. Step two. They did something to me about step two that I don't hear a whole lot. They said step two has nothing to do with God. It has to do with a higher power. The higher power is something that gives you a chance to hold on to those things that don't scare you, but are good for you. You don't know what they are. At first it was a job, and then it was, it was members of AA. Uh, it was a car for a while. A guy gave me a car. It was a year sober. He gave me a Lincoln car. A 1954 Lincoln with power seats and power windows and power antenna and no clutch. You know? <laughs> but man, it was a Lincoln car. It was my higher power. It took all my energy to keep it on the road. You know? <laughs> um, simple things. And then they, then they took me through to step three eventually. They took me by the hand. They led me through that. They, they didn't tell me I had to go by myself. And they didn't wait for me to uh, discover things. They slowly told me what had happened to them so that I wouldn't feel embarrassed. And, and then when they took me to step three, they didn't tell me I had to understand God. They said God. They didn't say that God was the higher power. They said the higher power is your higher power. God is God. Here's to understand what they meant. Took me, I don't think I did step three in its, in its entirety until I was about 12 or 13 years sober. I, I think I did it as soon as I met Damon because I knew I had a problem. Damon wanted to get well and I didn't know how to do it. It was like I had a problem. I think that's when, when I finally gave in to the, to the condition that God existed. And then it doesn't say that I have to really believe in God. It says that I have to make a decision that I'm going to. Well, I'm glad those guys told me that. They took all that pressure off. They, they taught me about step four. I, I was going to talk about step four tonight, but I'm not going to because I don't have time. But they taught me that step four was going back in my life long before I ever had a drink and finding out about the alcoholism in my childhood. Finding about, to, to learn about me, what it was about me that made me different from those people who didn't have the problems that I developed. Nobody made me crazy. I became crazy trying to hide. I made myself crazy. I made myself insane. There were conditions, people, things that all fit into it, but I always made that choice to try and be what I thought they wanted me to be. Step five was a very simple step. I did step five probably 12 or 14 times before I found out that it was not the way I thought it was. I thought step five says that you talk to another human being in front of God. And eventually somebody who, who was kind enough to, to just walk with me through that many times says, now let's try talking to God in front of another human being. And I was only, you know, I was new in sobriety when I finally did that. I think I was 14 years sober. I took that step. Finally. I had practiced it, practiced it, and practiced it. I finally was able to do it. And, and I know that doesn't sit well with some people, but 
That's what it says in the big book. It says, talk to God in front of another human being. Step six was really simple. I did that first day in sobriety never had to worry about it again. You know, and, I'm, and I hope there's people in here that do that. You know, come to AA, get perfect, and that's it. <laughs> Step six was a real dignifying thing. Uh, there's an argument that's gone on for years, and it'll still it'll go on for many more years. It'll, people asked Bill Wilson when he wrote Step six and Step seven. He said, "What's the difference between a shortcoming and a defective character?" And Bill, in, in all his four or five years of wisdom in AA. Uh, had no idea that the steps weren't his idea. He had no idea at that time that God had given those as a gift to him. And so he said, oh, it's the same thing. I just didn't want to repeat myself. So my sponsors told me if it was the same thing, there would only be 11 steps. They said that a defective character, not a defective character, a defect of character. Every one of you has a character that's good and loyal and wonderful and all full of all the nice things that you need. The trouble with the alcoholic is we have two or three little defects that get all our attention. All of our attention. You know, we, we have that insecurity about us. And so they explained that to me, that I wasn't going to change the insecurity, that I had to identify what it was and learn to live with it. And learn to use those parts of my character. So when I got to step six, eventually, it was easy. I had a good character with a few niches in it. And all I had to do was clean up those little nicks. Now, the shortcomings that they talked about was explained to me very simply. And it doesn't mean that it's the way it is, but it's the way it was explained to me. That a shortcoming is having a goal, having a place to be, having an ideal, and coming up short. Letting those little defects of my character control me instead of the good parts of my character. Excuse me. And that if I would just identify those shortcomings and ask God to remove that, just ask Him. Don't expect Him to. Just ask Him to. That He will clear a path for me so that I can begin to do steps eight and nine, which deal with other people. Now, step eight was a glorious thing to do. My first step eight, I had no idea that I should take it from the step four list because I didn't read the big book. So my first step eight was a whole list of people that I had harmed. And I took it to my sponsor. I don't know why I took it to my sponsor. I took very few things to my sponsor. And I took it to my sponsor and I said, I'm going to do step eight. He said, fine. He said, let me see the list. So I showed him this list. And he said, first of all, let's talk. He said, do you know what harm is? Of course I know what harm is. He said, well, explain it to me. And I had no idea what to tell him. And he said, harm is something that we do to change the course or condition of a person's life. And I looked at that list and I got a little embarrassed. What I had on that list was I had a whole bunch of women's names. And all these women... You have to remember that I was a jock for a long time. All these women were the women who I had impressed for a moment, had three beers too many, and just when the magic was about to happen, I went into a blackout. And I wanted on this list 
You see, why I wanted this list was because every one of those people I had gone into these little blackouts with, for some reason or other, never spoke to me again. And I wanted to take this list out and make amends to all these people and see what would happen. Now, I, I know that very few people identify with that. And my sponsor said, you know, all those people on that list, he said, I hate to tell you this. He said, the moment that you walked out of their life and never returned, the amends were done. <laughs> and that's when I began to understand what an alcoholic ego was. I was really hurt. <laughs> By the time I was done with my sponsors on that step, step nine was a very simple thing. There were a few people that I had to make some very direct amends to, some very, some of them took, there was a couple of amends that took a lot of years to make because, because of fear. Uh, the condition of the steps, I guess I'm just about running out of time here, the, con, the conditions of the steps that happened after that time, and I do understand now, it took me years to do those simple things that I've talked to you about. It took me, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to scare people away, but I don't think anybody does them fast. I know we understand them fast, and I know we, we uh, carry them to other people in a hurry. And I know, you know, like I used to really aggravate people. I would say, I'm going to talk to the newcomers tonight. Everybody with less than five years sobriety. And uh, everybody with less than five years sobriety say, who, what, who does he think he's doing? Well, I changed that. Now it's everybody with less than 10 years of sobriety. It's like the newcomers in AA. I, I understand now that it was nice that I was a newcomer for a lot of years without going back to the well, without returning to any kind of mood-altering chemicals. And, and those promises that are at the end of step nine couldn't be anywhere else. Because until I was able, I, I understood the promises. I wished for the promises. I hoped that the promises were happening but once I was able to do that slow conditioning, I felt the promises happen. I felt like it's nice to be able to stand up at a podium and know that you don't have to have a plan, that something nice can be said, that something that people are looking for, something that people want to identify with. You know, I'm not going to teach anybody out here anything. What I'm here for is so that you can understand one more time that there's a slow recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous for the sick individual who's suffering from a grave illness of mental, physical, and spiritual malfunctioning. I'm glad I can do that. I'm no better, no smarter, no wiser, no quicker, no faster than anybody else. I'm no slower than anybody else. What was given to me then was those last three steps. And those are the living steps. What, what a wonderful thing to finally learn that I can make mistakes for the rest of my life without feeling bad about them. Step 10 gives me the ability to do whatever there is to be done and when I make a mistake doing it, promptly admit first to myself, then to those people who it concerns, that I don't know everything and that everything I do isn't perfect. And I do that every day. Every day. I make mistakes every day. I work hard. I'm a hard-working individual. I work in an industry that demands hard work. And I work in an industry that, by demanding hard work, likes guys like me. I'm not a workaholic. I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous by reading a book that Chuck C. wrote, A New Pair of Glasses. I learned 
but this is about being of service to humanity. I used to think it was about being of service to suffering alcoholics. This program is about being of service to humanity. This is about a spiritual change in, in a uh, sick, introverted individual's life. And changing that person from sick to a well introverted individual's life. I'm an alcoholic. I always will be. Step 11, always, every day that I do step 11, reminds me first that I'm an alcoholic, I'm powerless over alcohol, and that without God, my life has no direction. For years, I used to pray for God's will. And I know people who pray and pray and pray for God's will. And about four years ago, I read the step one more time. And I was amazed. It said, pray for the knowledge of God's will. You never have to know what God's will is. What you have to know if you want continued, contented, uh, happy sobriety is what to do to go in the direction of God's will. The knowledge of that. How to stop pissing people off. How to stop Aggravating people for attention. How to stop always being in charge. I went to work for many, many years thinking I was supposed to tell the boss how to run his business. One day my sponsor said, who's paying who? And that's all he had to say. I wasn't paying him. Then I read that book, New Pair of Glasses. Earn the dollar that you get. You know, I was really miffed at first. I thought, now I've got to change that whole concept, you know. Step 11 is a very simple thing. I've learned how to meditate. Uh, my meditating caused you guys 10 minutes late for your dinner tonight. And I'm not, I'm not even going to apologize. <laughs> Wes phoned me at the hotel. It was 10 after 6. He said, they're waiting for you to start eating. <laughs> I didn't bother telling them I was meditating. I was sitting there feeling really grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wondering why, and really wondering why, all you people would want me to come up here and tell you about me. I know you don't want to tell, want, didn't want me to tell you about the program. We have hundreds of people that do that. Tell you about me. Tell you about, about how I feel. Tell you about how I came from despair to today. How I feel wonderful today. I feel wonderful every day now. And that's what step 12 gave me. A spiritual awakening because, not because I read the steps. And not because I understood the steps. And not because I was able to tell other people how to do the steps. Because I eventually was given that opportunity through the grace of God. And I didn't understand that for a long time. The grace of God, meaning I don't have to earn it. It's a gift. God's grace is a gift to anyone who asks for it. The serenity prayer tells us that. I'll have a little story with that that I'll close with. Uh, step 12 is about having a spiritual awakening, which doesn't mean a religious experience. It means a spiritual awakening. It means an arousing of my insides. Spiritual. It means taking the emotions that exist and beginning to live with them in a condition of contentment. I'm a hyper guy. How do I live with that? Use that to the advantage of other people, not to my advantage. 
I use that hyperness to make other people's lives better. Without telling them. I don't go to work every day and say to the boss, you're sure lucky to have me. <laughs> I used to. I used to have to do that because I was afraid he'd find out I didn't know anything. I was afraid he'd find out I didn't do anything. And I'm not a longshoreman either. <laughs> little in-joke, but... <laughs> Step 12 is, is the culmination of all those things that we do. Uh, I'm so glad that my sponsors told me to eliminate the word try out of my... Not my vocabulary, but my mind. Try was a word given to the alcoholic to induce a syndrome of failure. Oh well, I tried. Oh, I'll try again. I did that about two or three times with them and they said, forget try, let's do. Let's do. Let's, let's not worry about mistakes. If you just keep doing things, the things that are right will continue. The things that are wrong, people will help you to change. What an amazing thing that you people do for me. You don't know me personally, but you know me intimately. I don't know very many of you personally, but I know exactly what goes on in your mind. I know that an alcoholic never becomes a non-alcoholic. See, this, this thing up here is full of little worms. They're not bad worms. What they do is they just keep the soil... Uh, what do you call it? Aerated. You know? They keep it open for new ideas. And then there's this part that begins to connect with God and knows which new ideas to keep and which new ideas to throw away. I hope that you get a little bit from me and because I know that I get a lot from you. I'm so happy I met so many people here that I haven't seen for a long time. I've, I've made some new friends I know. I know that, that, that there's people out there that I'm going to get to know. And, and I've again touched base with some old friends. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a secret. It's not, uh, it's not unattainable. Alcoholics Anonymous is a miracle given to two people, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, to share with the world. Uh, Take a, I, all the people with five years sobriety stand up for just a second. Whoever's got five years, right on. Okay. Now, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bob and Bill were like those, that's those two people when they wrote the big book. Now, <laughs> and that's not to embarrass you. Could you imagine you two people changing the course of four million people's lives and not knowing what the hell you were doing. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. I thank you for letting me share part of me with you. Thank you, Chuck.
token of our appreciation.